The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everybody to One Hour at a Time. Of course, this is John McAndrew, your guest host. I'm lucky enough to host this show once in a while and fill in for Mary and Today, our guest is Cynthia Marino Tui, and she's going to talk about her book, Rain in Your Brain From Impulsivity to Thoughtful Living in Recovery. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Cynthia. She, she's going to tell us about her own addiction, life experiences, and eventual re, uh, recovery. She's gained incredible insight into the way the addicted brain is programmed, and this has led her to develop and apply techniques that have proven to help those in recovery and their compulsive behaviors. This has made her one of the leading experts in the field today, and Cynthia is the director of the National Association for Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselors. It's called NADAC. So her professional role and her life experiences provide an effective backdrop for the thought-provoking insights and advice in this book. And uh, Again, it's called Rain in Your Brain, From Impulsivity to Thoughtful Living and Recovery. Cynthia, welcome to the show. We're very grateful you're here. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be on the show. And, of course, I always love talking to you. You sound like you have a little bit of a cold. Is that I true? Do. I apologize. I have okay. a cold. And it, it's okay. We all suffer with something once in a while, right? Okay. Yeah. Your book, I, you know, first of all, you draw back the curtains quite a bit on your personal life, and I think that takes a lot of courage. You do it for a very specific reason so that people see how this limbic system and how our emotions and how this stuff is, is uh, really developed as kids and in our, in our younger lives and how we carry it through our life. And, uh, when did you decide, I always ask people to write a book, you know, how long did it take you to write this book? But what, what was the initial seed, the initial thing that really moved you to say, I think I need to write this book? It really was the counselors, my counselors that I worked with. Um, I worked with over 77 counselors and treatment agencies that I ran in Washington State. Mm-hmm. And part of what we did was intensive outpatient and outpatient and I worked with a, um, a therapist named Chuck DeVore. And Chuck and I worked together on, uh, he had some of the big idea concepts, and I had a lot of the other concepts about addiction treatment. And so together, we began doing recovery groups and treatment groups and batterers group mm-hmm. and really working on domestic violence issues and where does that come from. And so... We were teaching these, and our, the staff would say, you know, um, Sin, why don't you write this up so that we can do it too, and we have the information. 
So it began actually as writing up a manual for counselors. And so I actually ended up, when I moved to the East Coast from Washington State, I worked with um, the Addiction Technology Transfer Center, and my chairperson is Jeff, was Jeff Hoffman, who is the um, principal for Danya International, which is a worldwide health communications group. And they have all these researchers and writers, and he asked me if I would do a training for them on the limbic and the frontal cortex and how that affects addiction and how later in life that, that actually affects all of our being if we don't address, you know, our old tapes that are stuck in our limbic. Mm-hmm. I did. They loved it, and they said, you need to take it to NIDA. So long story short, I took, um, we worked together to, to apply this to a NIDA small business research initiative. It was finally accepted, and out of that came comes a manual for counselors on how to do this work with their clients. Uh-huh. And after doing that for several years, people said, well, why don't you just also make it available to the recovering community in a way that they can understand it, in a way that makes sense for someone who's not a therapist. So that's how this book came about, is really to extend out the recovery concepts and how to live your life happy and healthy, just to extend that out to people. Right. Um, so this, and then this, if they this, choose, this really took a long, long time. Um, you know, how many years of in the making could you say that this really was? Oh, probably over 20 years. Yeah. Just, just to get to this place, you know, from, from writing the material and working with clients and seeing how it needed to change and working with different populations of clients, probably 25 years worth of work. It's been my major clinical work as well as my major recovery work, and I've raised my children on these concepts as well. So, yeah, it's been over 25 years. It is very, uh, just being a lay person, you know, and I, I think I'm a lot like some of our listeners who know just enough about the brain, you know, to maybe diagram Homer Simpson and say where his cortex is and then all the rest of the stuff down in the middle. But it's very easily understood when did you decide to put Cynthia in the book and to start off the book with, with all your childhood stuff? I was talking to um, the, the lady that works with me on the, on the book, Victoria Costello, who mm-hmm. is an Emmy Award-winning writer. And she said, you know, your story is so powerful, people need to understand the context of of how you have used this to change your life and that it's real. It's not just a theory. And people need to understand that, that if, there, if there is trauma in somebody's life, and I've had what my therapist called third-degree trauma, that, that you can recover from this and you can change your brain and you can change your life and you can change generations. And because it was so impactful to me to hear that and for her to say, you know, you have the, this content is really good stuff. However, people need to understand the context. 
and where you came from so they can understand whatever level of trauma you have had, you have the ability to change. Whatever level of addiction you have had or even abuse or misuse, you have the ability still to become happier and healthier and to live your life in a, in a more powerful way. And so what became clear to me is that we all want to take our brain back, you know, that we sometimes, mm-hmm. those of us in addiction, give our brain to our addiction or in our trauma, we become par- powerless over our trauma as well. And it is very powerful to be in a place where you begin to recognize that you can actually not only influence your own brain and change it, you can influence those around you. Uh-huh. So the, the book starts off with your story, and, and you're about eight months old when you become a ward of the state. Now, your mom and dad, uh, I'm going to ask you to tell us about Doris and Jess, basically were just unable to be parents. And this, uh, you know, your story starts at about eight months old. So why don't you share with our listeners um, a little bit about how this starts in the book, because it is very powerful. Okay. Well, my my uh, parents, um, I was the third of, of the children that, that my father and mother had. And through that period of time of having the older two children, my mother um, had an addiction, and her addiction probably continued to grow. She also had a desire to become a professional dancer. And so um, in her toxic state, she decided to leave the home, and she ran away when I was eight months old, around eight months old. Mm-hmm. She did not leave a note. Of course, back then they didn't have cell phones or, you know, text messaging. So she left. And my father, um, my actually my grandmother got the phone call from the local grocery store that my sister had walked across, the, that my sister was there. She had apparently walked across the street on her own at the age of four and a half. And the grocery owner knew my grandmother and so he called her and said Kathy's over here Um, I don't know what's going on but please come and pick her up so my mother picked her up and came over my grandmother picked her up and came over to the house and of course there the other two children were myself and my brother and that's when people started to recognize mother wasn't there and the kids were by themselves so because nobody knew what happened my father basically thought that she she was kidnapped or something awful happened to her uh-huh. and he ended up having a nervous like a nervous breakdown and he eventually could not care for us and um, there was there was just this I guess big question about what was going on and so we ended up in a group home in Moses Lake Washington and from there the story you know continued she stayed away for um, almost three years, 33 months, and then she recontacted and uh, and my father and said, I want to see the kids. And we, by that time, I think we were in a, a home in Seattle, uh, a situation like a boarding home where 
someone was taking care of us, and my father was working, and and then she came to see us and kidnapped us. You know, he thought she was just going to have us for a visit, um, but she decided that, you know, she would take us down to Los Angeles, and and that kind of began the roller coaster. Even more, even more of a roller coaster. So, I'm I'm not sure how many homes. You know, when I talked to family from the group home in Moses Lake, we went to an aunt's home and then went to another home, and you know, we were just kind of moved from home to home, and then later in life, put in foster care. Right. When we come back, we're going to take a break here in a second. We'll continue a little bit more about uh, you build the groundwork for how this how our brain works uh, and when we, we come back we're going we're gonna to pick back up with Cynthia Marino Tui and her book is Rain in Your Brain From Impulsivity to Thoughtful Living in Recovery we'll be right back You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Make the most of your beautiful life. Listen to Ageless Living with Dr. Tong Lee and co-host Kurt Wilhelm to gain tips on how to live healthier and happier, alleviate suffering, prevent disease, become more beautiful in body, mind, and fashion, and find peace, balance, and success in your life. Are you aware that every 3,500 calories that you eat above what you burn will put a pound of fat on your body? And running one mile only burns 200 calories? So portion size does matter, and migraines do have a cure. What is it? You'll have to tune in Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking with Cynthia Marino-Tui. And Cynthia, before we go any further, the book is available, of course, at Hazelden Publishing, uh, also Amazon.com. Is that right? Yes, yes. And if people had questions for you, how could they contact you directly? They could email me at Cynthia, C-Y-N-T-H-I-A, at NADAC, n a D-A-C dot org. Be right. happy to respond. Great. So we, in the first segment, talked about 
it was important for you and your co-writer really suggested that you share your personal story, and it's very, very powerful um, as a backdrop or sort of the bedrock of how our brains develop. And, and your book really teaches us how to talk to our brains in a different way, but we need to know where it started. And if you just pick up from, you know, your parents basically dropping you off in foster home after foster home. And you talk in the book about you you became kind of a bad girl, didn't you? Well, I, I got very limbic, what we call very limbic. Yeah. So the limbic <laughs> is all about fight or flight. It's about protecting yourself. And your limbic is the oldest part of your brain. It was set up, it was the only part of our brain actually in the in the cave person day. And it was basically set up to protect us. And what happens is when you're in trauma or when you're in addiction, because addiction also resides in the limbic, is that you, you end up living in reaction. Everything is reactionary instead of thoughtful. And so there's little impulse control in the limbic, and you basically do what you need to do to survive. And that's what I did. I became one of those kids that, that got tough and... Uh, started using drugs early. My mother actually turned me on before I was 10. I was um, sexually abused starting at about the age of five and physically abused throughout my life. So I got very instinctual to protect myself, and I got to the place where in Hollywood, I was living in Hollywood, and I, I lived with my father and his second wife at that time. She would not feed me, and she was really, she would beat me and she was pretty mean to me. And so I decided that I would get some girls together and we would start what I thought was kind of a girly girl club and um, <laughs> go rob, you know, steal to um, get get what I wanted. And part of what I wanted was, you know, food. I wanted to get money to buy fruit and vegetables. I was craving really fresh fruit and food. And then I also was attracted, of course, to beautiful jewelry. So um, I, w- I was one of those girly girls. So I put together this little girls gang, which my probation officer called a gang. And he said, you know, girls don't do this. And we don't know of any other girls group. And you're a girls gang and something's wrong with you. Uh-huh. And as far as I was concerned... I was just trying to live, I, and I, and it took great organizational skills. I was 11 years old, put together how to do this up and down Hollywood and Vine, ending up at the Broadway where the best jewelry was, and then coming across the street and going up the street to several other smaller shops where we would steal miscellaneous things that we could trade or barter for, trade, barter, or get money, and that's kind of what we did until, you know, I got caught enough times that I was in trouble. <laughs> and then I had to decide what, what else was I going to do besides this. Mm-hmm. You talk about your first boyfriend uh, bringing them home to, I guess, mom and pop were taking care of you at that time. Is that right? Are you talking about the, uh, the um, I'm trying to remember which, which one? The well, your first dance. Um, oh, yes. The, the my, boy named Arnie. 
Yes. He, he, and yes. you brought him home, and that fell apart. And I think, you know, it was after this experience, I think you had a really cathartic experience. I want you to share that with our listeners about walking over to the church. So what you, happened yeah. is that I, um, I had gone to the summer last summer dance, and I met Arnie Moreno, and um, he is Hispanic, Latino, and we just that very first night, he actually had gone home and told his brothers he found the woman of his life, the girl of his life, the girl he was going to marry. I didn't know that till you know, some months later. I thought he was just just a really nice person, and I, we started to build a relationship. Um, I had a cousin that didn't appreciate that, and I was living with my grandparents in foster care at the time. And she told my grandparents, and they said, you know, Cindy, you can't have a Mexican uh, friend. And I said, well, you know, I grew up in Southern California. I lived in a lot of the homes I lived in were Hispanic. You know, I was very confused. I thought maybe I was, you know, who knows? Maybe I was half Hispanic. I don't know what I was. I had no real sense of identity at the time. And so I said, well, no, that's not right. You know, I'm, he's my friend, and I'm going to keep him as my friend. And, and you know, they were trying to use biblical verses on me, and I said, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what God said. You know, Jesus would never say, you can't have a Hispanic friend. Mm-hmm. And so they basically said, well, then you're going to have to go back out in the public foster care market. So because they were really my foster home, I was still a ward of the court and in that system. And I said, fine, then I'll do that. I'm not going to compromise my belief system. And they said, oh, no, not just you. Your brother will have to go, too, because we had gotten my brother out of the foster home he was in, in the country, and brought him into the, into the home with my grandparents and I. So I was really upset, and I... I I couldn't believe that this was happening. I had just become a Christian. So I ran down to the church, and I started yelling and screaming and cussing at God and saying, you know, you make these promises that if we get our life together and we change, that things will get good, and this is bad. You know, how could yep. this happen? And um, what happened is that, and again, I didn't learn this till years later. It's always funny, you... you, you you know that God is always in process even when we can't see that he's in process. The gal who was working late that night in the church heard me and she was afraid because she thought I was going to tear up the sanctuary. So she called the youth group leader, Anne, and Anne came down and said, Cindy, what's happening? And I, of course, tried to slough it off. And she said, no, I can see you're crying, you're cussing, what's going on? And I told her what was happening. And she said something like, you know, you never know what God is going to do. You know, you got to expect a miracle. And I looked at her and I said, you know, you Christians all say those pat verses and they don't mean anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in this terrible situation, and I don't know what to do, and it's not just me, it's my brother as well. And less than two and a half, about two and a half weeks later, she brought an emergency foster care license 
and my brother and I moved into her and her husband's home, Ann and Dwight's wow. home. Wow. And that was a whole different family, wasn't it? Uh, it environment. It was a family. It was yeah. the first real family that I ever recall that I actually got to live in, and they taught me how to be family. Mm-hmm. They taught my brother and I. We had family meetings, and we talked about things, and she would come downstairs, and I had these scars on my back from, you know, the different uh, beatings and scratches and belts and all that, and she would break these vitamin E capsules open and put that vitamin E oil on my back every night that she was home and I was home. And it not only began to heal the outside of my skin, it began to heal the inside of me. The next chapter... The, the title is A Brief Lesson in Neuroscience, but underneath that you, you, you write, Goodbye Limbic, Hello Thinking Brain. This is really a big shift in the way your brain works now, isn't it? But tell us this little lesson in neuroscience. Uh, I think we know about the limbic. It's kind of like the roadrunner just gets way out in front of us, doesn't it? <laughs> and then we just, the cortex takes a little while to catch up, but that that limbic had been about the only way you had thought before you got into this new environment, wasn't it? Right. So we were in survival mode and also in addiction. We live our life in the limbic. And much much of what happens in family systems is very limbic. It's it's all about um, negative thinking and negative information and yelling at kids or yelling at people in your family and and basically telling people that they're not good enough. And all of, all of those limbic words, like you should or no or you always or how could you or you better not, all of that triggers the limbic. And so the limbic gets very active. It's not until we learn how to live in our frontal cortex, which is our, our frontal cortex is our thinking brain. It's the place where we learn impulse control. It's the place where we learn problem-solving and decision-making and judgment. And it's also the place where we learn how to have commitment to relationship. So the limbic doesn't actually grow commitment to relationship. It's the frontal cortex where we really learn how to do that. So when you learn how to take your brain back and basically live more in your thinking brain and choose when you go to your, your limbic is when you have power. And one of the first ways I teach people to stand still in the moment, because that's, that's, that's what happens. Your limbic is all irritated, and you're going to make a decision out of that limbic unless you learn how to stand still in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I say, ask yourself this question. Before you speak, before your voice gets the way that your voice gets, you know, and your gestures go the way that your gestures go, ask yourself, is what you're going to say and the way that you're going to say it, is it going to build the relationship up or is it going to keep it level or is it going to tear the relationship down? And if people can just take those milliseconds and stop, they can begin to build neural pathways from the limbic system to the frontal cortex and then they can learn some of the other things that we teach in the book, some of the other big ideas they can learn how to do that. When we come back, we're going to take a short break. Um, 
we're kind of on big idea number one, and basically the rest of the book is, uh, is about these 10 big ideas, which are you give case examples with their names changed, of course, of people that you've worked with and, and how these uh, how these methods work. That's why the words proven are used over and over. Again, we're talking to Cynthia Marina Tui, and we'll be back in a minute. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. You read about it in health news every day. Cancer rates are going up. Obesity in the U.S. is on the rise. Heart disease and diabetes are top killers every year. We can follow the advice of our doctor, but cravings persist. Weight goes up and energy is still down. It doesn't have to be like this. Tune in for Body Balance Talk with your host, Jeannie Schmidt, along with Lucy and Madeline. You'll learn how you can work with your body to feel better and look better, too. Body Balance Talk airs live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking with Cynthia Marina Tui, and, and again, Cynthia, I, it takes a lot of courage to share uh, so much of your personal story and experiences, but you've definitely turned this into something very powerful to change not only our lives, but our kids' lives and their kids' lives. And um, Again, folks, you can order this at Hazelden Publishing, and it's available at Amazon.com. Cynthia, a lot of the meat of the book, after you set it up now, about our brain, and uh, are these ten big ideas you call them? Uh, and I know you told us early in the interview that probably twenty years of experience working with people is where these came from. These are proven tools to use, and uh, maybe we'll do three, four, five of them in this segment and the next segment and talk about some more. But the first one we, we talked a little bit about in the last segment, stand still in the moment. Why don't you tell us more about that? So um, with my colleague, Chuck DeVore, mm-hmm. um, who really helped uh, solidify these and helped me build them, I, I've built them since that point in time. The stand still in the moment is learning how to, how to slow down that limbic brain 
mm-hmm. and how to gain control of it, how to actually rethink what you're thinking and ask yourself if you really want to live in a low-impulse way. And standing still in the moment is, is like taking your breath and holding it, only you're taking your limbic and holding it, and then you're pushing basically your neurotransmitters or your, your neural pathways forward thinking in your thinking part of your brain saying, what do I really want to do here? Is this conversation, is this issue worth beating up this relationship? Mm-hmm. Or is there a way for me to keep this relationship level in this conversation, which means I need to keep my voice level and I need to make human contact with this person? And if I really want to build up this relationship, I need to really understand what this person is trying to say to me and what I'm trying to say to them. So standing still in the moment is probably the hardest thing that we do. And each one of these big ideas we have to train our brain to do. It takes time. The well, it is, it's, it's obviously a lot easier to just be reactionary, as you said. Yes. Uh, doesn't that just take less energy well, than takes, the better route, which takes a little bit of energy to slow down and rethink? Exactly. And we learn... We actually learn our conflict style, our communication and conflict style in our homes as well. So we learn in our homes how do you deal with conflict. And Thomas Kilman um, uh, put together uh, kind of a, a gauge or a, a quiz to help you to figure out what tends to be your style in conflict. And all of us can be pretty nicey-nice as long as things are going along well. It's when right. things don't go along well that we blow up. And once we blow up, that's when we get into the conflict. So we, we need to learn how do we slow down that brain so that we really are thinking about, well, what am I about ready to do? Am I going to tear somebody's head off? Or am I going to get passive-aggressive? Or am I going to you know, try to play judge and judge everybody? So we end up making decisions and split milliseconds about what we're going to do instinctually. And this actually teaches you these are the things that your brain does automatically. These are, the, these are the things that your environment has taught you and your family of origin has taught you. Now that you know these things, what, what you want to do. You know, so it teaches you about yourself. It teaches you about your family scripts and your family mm-hmm. roles. It helps you to kind of analyze that and look at that and then it helps you to decide do I want to keep that is that my script is that what I want for my future or do I want to change it and so this is all about you're taking your power back to change your brain to be the person that you want to be and to then affect other people with it because you can raise your children living in their limbic and therefore they'll seek drugs alcohol sex shopping food to soothe their limbic, or you can teach them to live in their frontal cortex and they'll have less need to find an alternative way to soothe their limbic system. In all these chapters with the big ideas, and we'll go to number two, but there's two great examples of a mother and a daughter and a husband and a wife of where the limbic takes over and fear and how it affected their relationship. These are people you actually work with, so I encourage people... 
this is a really good, important chapter to read because it really comes to life when it's in these examples that you give. So big idea number two, do not assume intent. Yes, we have this this thing, most of us do, where someone says something or they look at us a certain way or they do something, and we're making assumptions because we think we know them, particularly people that are the closest to us. I call them the people in our sticking distance. You know, they're close. We assume what they think. We assume what they're saying, and we almost can say it for them, although we're not always correct. In fact, often we're not correct, and we don't honor the relationship by assuming. So this really teaches us how not to assume intent and what happens when we do. Because our Olympic, you gave the examples earlier on, uses language like um, you always. Right. You never. I'm not. You meant to hurt me. You meant to hurt me. You meant to, to irritate me. You meant to hurt my feelings. So we get into these these ideas about what people mean when, in fact, they probably didn't even think that in the first place. And then we act out of it, which triggers the other person. So instead of um, really living our lives more peacefully, we're triggering each other to be hurtful and spiteful. So what are the tools to slow down to keep from doing that? that, Because the first intention... The first assumption always comes from the Olympic, right? Then what do we do? We, we talk to ourselves. We stop okay. and we ask ourselves, you know, could this be an assumption? Could this be that I'm thinking that this person feels this way or am I making an assumption? So how do I want to respond to this? Do I want to respond out of my limbic or do I want to take control of my brain and say, gosh, you know, did you mean this? When you said this sentence, did you mean it this way or did you mean something else? So you're asking clarifying questions. Instead of jumping to conclusions, you're actually stopping and asking, what What really did you mean? Or was your intention to hurt my feelings by saying, gosh, you look fat in that bathing suit? <laughs> you, know? Right. you know, just simple things that we do. And and then people run on that, and, and all of their self-worth issues get caught up. So it's not just the sentence. It's all those layers of, of childhood, not feeling good about yourself, unworthiness. Um, maybe if you had trauma, all of that gets wrapped up into that one little sentence and that, that one emotion. And then we, then we have to try to pick that apart and figure out really what was being said and how did I interpret it. And the more sensitivity I have to certain things in my life, the more my brain amplifies it. So if I'm sensitive to, let's say I'm sensitive to um, my weight or I'm sensitive to my addiction or I'm sensitive to being a good parent, whenever there's a comment that leads in that direction, Mm-hmm. My brain is going to amplify it because that's where my trauma is. My trauma is held in my emotion, and my emotion amplifies it. And so it gets, gives a level three issue a level nine response. Oh, boy. I think people, everyone can relate to that. 
mountains out of molehills, right? Right, and we all we all have stuff. None of us get through life without some stuff. So I think you know whether you're in recovery from addiction or recovery from life, you know we all have stuff that that we need to look look further into and get more understanding. So big idea number three is to dig deeper into the conflict because all of us have a different fabric. We our fabric of our life is what makes us beautiful and also what what sometimes brings these old scripts. So if we look at the fabric of someone else and not be so so much wanting to look at our own fabric or have you look at my fabric, I actually look at your fabric and I take the time to dig deeper into the conflict and believe there's got to be a treasure here because you care so much about this issue, you're talking about it in this way there's got to be more treasure here. So what, what, what am I missing? It's basically stopping my, my limbic from going, you know, postal and thinking about, well, what makes this so important to you and why are you responding in this way to this particular conversation that we're having? And isn't that uh, sort of akin to getting out of yourself, thinking yeah. of others, compassion? that part of the brain. Is compassion in the cortex then? Compassion is an emotion that is in the limbic. However, you can grow it through your cortex. So you can also regulate it. So much of our emotion is unregulated. Uh, Much of our trauma is unregulated. So we're actually regulating and reframing. We're rethinking what something means. So you're, you're taking your limbic back and you're giving it a better context. You're giving your emotion more context to understand. So I always thought that my mother hated me because she uh-huh. kept leaving me. She'd often keep my sister, keep my sister close, but she'd leave me and she'd leave my brother. And I thought, why does she hate me so much? Well, later in life I found out wasn't that she hated me. It's just that, number one, I was younger, so harder to take care of. And number two, she thought I had a very strong spirit so that I would survive anyway. And so she felt like she needed to give me less attention because of that. So well, kind of Cynthia, we're going to take a break, and we're up to big idea number four. So in the last segment, we'll couple, we'll cover a couple more ideas, and then I think... Just talk a little bit more to you about what are we going to do with all this? How can this change our own lives, our children's, our family's lives? Um, you contend that this could change generations to come in, this, you know, in the field of emotional sobriety you talk about in recovery. So we'll be back in a minute again with Cynthia Marino-Tui. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Are you ready to laugh and learn as you get the info that will get you fit? Small steps can lead to big changes once you're headed in the right direction. Join the dynamic twin sister and exercise expert team of Alexandra Williams and Kimberly Williams-Evans on Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers. K&A bring you top-level guests who offer active aging advice and practical tips you can use today. Enjoy the second phase of life with vitality, brain power, and energy. Active Aging for Boom Chicka Boomers airs live Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking to Cynthia Marino, too. The name of her book is Rain in Your Brain, From Impulsivity to Thoughtful Living and Recovery. I've said the word impulsivity seven times now and haven't messed it up yet, so um, I'm on a roll. Cynthia, we want to get in some more of the big ideas, but I also want you to talk about how you feel this can really change people's lives personally, you know, children and change generations to come by being able to talk to our brain differently. Uh, But we stopped at big idea number four, so maybe we'll pick up there. Big idea number four is to cultivate confusion. Mm -hmm. And that sounds kind of paradoxical. Why would you want to cultivate confusion? And it really is about that when you approach a misunderstanding, that it can be confusion. Maybe it's, maybe it's the way one is interpreting it. Maybe I don't quite understand what you mean. So instead of saying, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you say, um, I'm confused. You know, this, this doesn't quite make sense to me. Oh, okay. Or let's say you have an agreement on something and the agreement isn't being met. So then you can say, I'm sorry, I thought we had this agreement. Am I confused? I'm sorry, my understanding was that we were going to do this at 7 o'clock and here it is 5 o'clock and you're at my door and I have something else to do. I'm confused. Did, did we say 7 or did we say 5? Five. 5. So that it's a non-blaming way of talking about things. It suspends your judgment. You know how fast we are to judge other people or to, to judge a situation? It actually suspends your judgment 
and it helps you to talk about a situation without blaming or shaming. Right. So the cortex can figure out what's the truth. Is that part of that? That's part of that, and <laughs> that, that you don't have to fight over it. You see, we get in this thing in our limbic, again, instinctual, where we want to fight or flight. So we either run aw- want to run away from somebody or we want to go for the jugular. <laughs> so right. It kind of helps us to stop from doing that and to actually have a conversation that, that opens the door to possibilities. And I think that's, that's really the, so much of the context of this book, or what are ways to deal with the trauma of our lives, to understand our background, and then to give us new ways of talking. It gives you a new way of talking and understanding and communicating uh, without blaming and shaming each other. Mm-hmm. So also- five, five is understand the paradox of control. Yes, yeah, so this is really important because much of our us, much much of us, much, much many of us in recovery try to now control situations because mm-hmm. we're, you know, we we were out of control and so now we are trying to control. Or if our emotions were out of control, now we're trying to control them. Or if trauma and hurt controlled our lives or fear, then we're trying to control it. And the paradox of control that I can't control anybody. You know, I, I, can, I can barely control myself. You know, I can learn to control myself. I cannot control you. So the more I try to control you, really, the less control I have. Mm-hmm. So instead of trying to control you, how do I give good information to influence you? How do I give you other ideas that will influence you? And I, instead of pushing... Uh, against your resistance, I'm pushing with your resistance so that then you can make a different decision if you so choose. But I'm no longer trying to make you into something or make you think something. I'm just trying to influence. This really works well with young people growing up, you know, pre-teens, teens, because teens want to learn how to control their own brain They want to learn how to make their own decisions. And I believe that we begin at age two, you know, one and a half, two, three years old, teaching our children how to grow their cortex. If we teach them good decision-making skills and how to grow their cortex, they can learn how to do that. And we don't have to control them or feel like we have to control them or our significance either. You talked to me during break, um, uh, and you said something very significant, how your children are different than you are. They've been raised differently with some of these techniques uh, and some of these tools. And I think most people are aware of the fact that kids that grow up in, uh, in a chaotic environment where there's alcoholism or violence or abuse, that lack of control over anything will keep them in that I guess what you would say, an Olympic state. Right. Many people for their whole life, it's really tragic that they can't get out of that. Right, right. And so and how different that. are your children than, um, and I know they're very different, their life is very different than yours, and how, how has that affected them? I think my children process things differently. So instead of processing in their limbic consistently, 
they process in their frontal cortex. So they, they talk things out. They're, they're great communicators. They talk about it. They don't get overly anxious. They don't get overly riled. Uh, they work through the conflict. They talk through the conflict. Or if they're overwhelmed, they'll say, I need to stop now. I w- we will come back to this. I need to stop now, and then we'll come back to it later. And they do, typically. They're not 100%. Nobody is. In fact, when Chelsea was in eighth grade and she was getting ready to graduate eighth grade, we were at the practice session, and the principal came up to me, and he said, I don't want Chelsea to graduate. And I could have gone limbic right then and said, what? What are you talking about? Instead, I said, staying in my frontal cortex, I said, what causes you to say that? And he said, I've never seen a kid like Chelsea. She resolves conflict between kids and kids. She talks it through with them. They come to her. She resolves conflicts with teachers and kids. They come to her. And she resolves conflicts even between teachers and teachers. What are you teaching her? Why? How does she learn this skill? What is this? And so that's when I began teaching teachers how to live in their frontal cortex, how to understand these concepts, and how to talk differently to their students and to their own personal relationships. Because our society is very limbic. I think that's probably why we see so much conflict and so much addiction or hurtful relationships. Maybe that's why we have such a high divorce rate is that we learn to live in our limbic and then we don't know how to get out of it. Yeah. And, and so compulsive, we live there all of our lives. sort of everything, everything is done compulsively. And you contend that by raising your children this way, that their children are going to be born differently, even possibly genetically, with these new tools that have been sort of woven into their brain. Is that... That's a pretty amazing thing if you could think, my God, if we could teach all our kids to do this while they're in school, you know, along with gym and math. Yeah, so what we know is that trauma, emotion, historical grief, historical trauma, is mm. pa- and, and addiction is passed down from generation to generation in our cellular tissue. We know that our cellular tissue changes in trauma. We also know we can change our cellular tissue in recovery and that we can recover from trauma. We can recover from uh, pain and hurt. And as we're recovering and we have children, they can recover too. And that's the beauty of recovery is that not only do we pass it on to the current generation, when our children have children, they're already in a better place genetically and in terms of their cellular tissue, if they continue to live that way, they will pass it on to their children. And so we know that addiction is generational. Recovery, I believe, is generational. We know that now by the science that, yeah. that we can change those cellular tissues. So I look at this, someday I'm going to have grandchildren and because my children had a better growing up than I had and because they also have learned how to live their life differently than I did growing up, they're already in a better place. So when they have children, 
and they continue to live this way, I think their children will be in a better place. And as a grandparent, I'll be in a better place to communicate with them and support that change. And then generation after generation. This is incredible stuff, and I I encourage people to, to try to get a hold of the book. It's called Rain in Your Brain, From Impulsivity to Thoughtful Living and Recovery. And we, at one hour at a time, really want to thank you, Cynthia, for being on the show. Well, thank you, Johnny Mac, for having me on the show, and thank Mary Woods for me as well. All right, we will stay tuned for the next show next week, everybody. Bye for now. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.